Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Chris Farrell, in for Angela Davis. So the economy's on the mend, thanks to the vaccine rollout, although, you know, progress is at risk with the Delta variant. Stock market, it's at near record levels. The employment report for July was about as good as it gets with an increase of nearly 1 million jobs. Businesses looking for workers to meet rising demand are hiking wages, and they're improving benefits. That said... The most vulnerable groups in our economy, including those without a college degree, people living on low and unstable incomes, people who have historically faced prejudice and discrimination, have taken the brunt of the crisis. Black and minority small business owners were hit especially hard by the downturn. So to talk about the economy, the outlook for the economy, and inclusive economic growth, along with other pressing economic topics, I'm joined by Neil Kashkari. He's president and chief executive officer at the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, and he has been in that position since 2016. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And Neil, I want to start off with the Fed series on racism in the economy. And this has been these webinars that have looked at uh, the impact of racism on employment, entrepreneurship, housing, health, and other topics. And by the way, for listeners, you can go online and you can listen to uh, these webinars. So what have you taken away from this deep dive into racism in the economy? You know, first of all, uh, Chris, the inspiration for this series came after George Floyd was murdered here in Minneapolis. And I reached out to my colleague at the Atlanta Fed, president of the Atlanta Fed, Rafael Bostic, because Atlanta is also an epicenter for racial disparities. And I asked him, what could we do to use the Federal Reserve to make a contribution to try to make progress on these issues? Ultimately, the, all 12 Federal Reserve banks got together and decided to sponsor this, these, these deep dives, as you put it, into the economy. And one thing that has taken away is just how pervasive the disparities are. They affect almost every aspect of our economy almost every aspect of our society, and they've been around for decades or centuries, and we are long overdue for finally taking bold action to try to close these disparities. It's not only an issue of fairness and doing the right thing, it's about helping our economy reach its full potential so we're not leaving behind people who want to contribute to our economy but today can't. Okay, so speaking of bold action, I mean – are there concrete steps that you've learned that organizations, companies can take? Because what we don't want to have is five years from now, the Fed runs a similar series and everyone is saying the same thing. Well, I could not agree more with that. And I'm, by the way, I'm reminded and I remind my colleagues all the time. I remember when Rodney King was beaten in the early 90s and the nation rose up in anger that this is outrageous. Enough is enough. And then nothing changed. So you're 100% correct. I mean, at the Minneapolis Fed, we're, we've been doing since I joined and, and before a lot of work to improve the culture of our organization so that everybody feels included. I think we've made a lot of progress. We're able to recruit wonderful talent, you know, all races represented, men and women, different backgrounds. That's progress that I think we're making as an organization. And I hope other companies are making similar progress. But we have to, we also have to pursue systematic policy changes at the local, state, and federal level to make sure that these gains are sustained. So give us an example of what might be the kind of policy changes that you're talking about. Well, I'll give a very specific example. In Minnesota, former Supreme Court Justice Alan Page and I have uh, proposed amending Minnesota's constitution to create a civil right 
for every child in Minnesota, every child of every race and every socioeconomic background to get a quality public education and then make delivering on that right the state's highest priority. You know, Minnesota has a wonderful education system for many students, but it, that those headlines mask some of the worst ec, uh, racial disparities and economic disparities in the nation. And that's simply not good enough. If we want our economy to thrive as a state, we need to educate all of our young people, not just some of our young people. And enshrining this in the Constitution is a way to drive transformational change. Now, I think the polite way to say this is that uh, former state Supreme Court Justice Alan Page and you came out with this proposal. And I would say the reaction was pretty hostile. Well, you know, we're confronting a fundamental reality in Minnesota. Everyone says that they want to put kids first. Yes, I'm for kids first. Great. Let's enshrine it in the Constitution. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. I'm not. I'm. Wait, what? Why do you want to do that? So the question is, as Minnesota, are we serious about addressing these disparities or not? I think the jury is out. Okay. And then speaking of serious, one of the issues, and it's here in Minnesota, but elsewhere around the country, um, you know, black women, minority businesses, immigrant business owners, you know, they've long struggled to get contracts, you know, to be at the table when companies are distributing and finding their suppliers. Again, and also issues about lack of access to capital. I think I've read probably, you know, when I started out in journalism back in the uh, early 1980s, you know, talking about lack of access to capital to minority businesses. So again, what concrete steps can be taken to change the dynamic when it comes to black and minority businesses getting contracts. Well, that's a that's a big issue. So let me let me address it in a couple of ways. One is access to capital. The Federal Reserve and other banking regulators uh, apply a policy called the Community Reinvestment Act to make sure that banks are treating all of their potential customers fairly. And we're going through a process right now to modernize those regulations to make sure that they are effective for the modern economy. So this is something we're very focused on. We know it's a problem, and we have a specific role to play to try to address it. In terms of contracts, I'll just give you some personal experience. We have a specific initiative at the Minneapolis Fed to make sure that we are reaching out to women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses to give them a chance to bid. Now, you know, I just met with, I did a town hall, an online town hall, with some minority and women-owned firms in Minnesota. And there was a, a woman-owned minority construction company who actively goes after big contracts for big vendors like Target and other customers. And I asked her, I said, you know, we at the Minneapolis Fed have had some big construction projects the last couple of years. Did you have a chance to bid on those? Because we have a strategy to reach out to firms like yours. And she said to me, no, I didn't even know about it. Where are you advertising? And so that made me go back to my contracting folks and say, hey, wait a second, are we being aggressive enough to make sure that everybody knows about our work so they have a fair chance to bid. So I don't want to pretend that this is an easy problem to solve. We're trying, but I'm going to tell you, we're not doing enough and we are committed to doing more. And are you seeing other companies, other organizations taking similar actions? I am. I do think a lot of the big businesses, especially in Minnesota, know this is important, know this is something they can directly influence and are leaning forward to try to make progress in this area. But I think we all need to do more. And so, um, and part of this, I want to make a shift to 
the economy. And just to start off with, how good is the economy right now? I mean, how are you looking at the economy? Well, the U.S. economy was in a very strong position before the COVID crisis hit. And then it went through a rapid shutdown, and it is now going through a rapid reopening. The fundamentals are sound. The outlook is very positive. But we are still in a deep hole. You said in the setup to this that there are still 6 to 8 million Americans who are out of work who would have been working if the pandemic had not happened. That is true. So we're coming out of this hole, but we're still in a deep hole. And the economy, as it's going through this rapid reopening, there are lots of frictions and there are lots of hiccups along the way. And that's what we're seeing in certain sectors. So you're seeing bottlenecks in used cars and in the automotive sector, as an example. These uh, hiccups are not unexpected, but they're real. And so certain sectors of the economy are recovering more quickly. But I think the outlook is overall positive, especially if we can get control of the Delta variant. And, um, you know, one of the striking things about this this economy right now has been employers complaining, you know, they can't get the workers they need. And it's become really popular to say, well, it's these enhanced unemployment insurance benefits. That's why people aren't coming back to work, which raises all kinds of questions. But what do you think is behind, you know, the difficulty some companies have had getting the workers they need? I think it's a multitude of factors. I do think the enhanced unemployment benefits are playing some role, and it, it's kind of common sense. If you're making as much money or more on unemployment benefits and you know they're expiring in a month, why wouldn't you wait a month, collect those benefits before you go back to the job market? So I do think that there's some truth to that. Number two, a lot of people are still nervous about COVID. Public health officials spent the last year and a half warning us to all take care and be careful. And a lot of people are saying, okay, I got the message. I'm going to be careful and cautious as I go back into the workforce. And then third, Childcare has been a huge issue with schools being shut. My wife and I have two very young children. When our kids are home, boy, it's a lot harder. Even if you know we're lucky, we can work remotely. It's a lot harder to get your job done if you're trying to care for your children at the same time. So I'm optimistic that this fall should be a lot better and some of those pressures should be relieved. But it's probably going to take time before everybody is able to fully return to the workforce. In one of the things I'm sort of curious about, so 5.4% unemployment, one of my, I don't think this is unusual, but one of my, you know, sort of standard refrains is that, you know, when people talk about the economy, they're really talking about the job market. I mean, they're not talking about GDP or anything else. They're talking about the health of the job market. And when you look at 5.4% unemployment, you say, okay, that's 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 not bad, at least, uh, you know, and it's obviously much better than it was during the depths of the pandemic. But it's deceptively good, right? I mean, this job market is not that healthy right now. That's right. If you know, So the 5.4% to be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively looking for work. But a lot of people, for the reasons that we just talked about, are not actively looking for work, so they're not counted as unemployed. We think the real effective unemployment rate is closer to 8% today, which is a lot better than it was six months ago or a year ago, but is still a long way away from the 3.5% unemployment rate that we had before the pandemic. So there are still six to eight million Americans who ought to be working right now who are not for a multitude of reasons. So we're making progress. We're climbing out of this hole, but we're still in a pretty deep hole right now. And so it's far too soon to declare victory. Yeah. And one of the things when you look at the um, the labor force participation rate and the part that really interests me with the labor force participation rate is women and since 2000. So we're going back, you know, this is, you know, 
two decades, um, the labor force participation rate of women in the U.S. has been mostly flattened down. I mean, there was an uptick as you got into 2018, 2019 uh, with the low unemployment rate. And this recession was what's been called, I think the term is a she-session, a word that I cannot pronounce. But because for the first uh, downturn since the uh, World War II, women bore, bore the brunt of job losses compared to men. And now we got these uncertainties with schools and the Delta variant, lack of childcare. Um, so one of the things that really concerns me is what are the prospects for employment for women and improving their labor force participation rate? Well, it's a, it's you're right to be concerned for all the reasons that you said, and there there are no easy solutions. I mean, the childcare issue, quality childcare is expensive. You know, it just simply is expensive, and that's kind of a reality. And unless the federal government steps in with some kind of long term program, it's going to continue to be a real challenge for families. I mean, my wife and I both have very good jobs. We have two young children in daycare that we pay for. It's very expensive, even for us, and we're very, you know, we're well off relative to most people. We're very fortunate in that regard. So that's a huge challenge. So I think part of it is going to be the fiscal policies that the state and federal government adopt, and part of it is simply going to be having a strong economy as possible, as tight a labor market as possible. One of the things we saw in 2017, 18, and 19, as the job market got tighter, as businesses complained that they couldn't find workers they started going the extra mile to help bring workers back in. They started to train workers. Instead, they said, I, I expect you to have all the skills I want for me to hire you. Then they said, no, 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 we'll train you for this job, or we'll give you more flexibility, or we'll support you in other ways that you need so that you can come to our, uh, to our office and be productive and still meet your other needs. So businesses have a role to play. It's not just the government. It's going to take both of them. And Neil, there's an important term, catchphrase, that's out there that sort of disappeared for, well, since the 1970s, full employment. And we're starting to hear about the, the goal of a full employment economy. So why is full employment back as a goal? Well, it, I mean, uh, it should never have been gone as a goal. I know, but you, you would talk to economists in the 80s and 90s, and they would like, you know, oh, that's from the 50s and 60s, and it leads to higher inflation if we get too many people employed. I mean, that seemed to be a refrain that went on for a long time. You're right, and it, and it frustrated me to no end for as long as I've been at the Federal Reserve. So let me back up. The F Congress gave the Federal Reserve what we call it our dual mandate. We have two primary goals, one of which is stable prices what we define as 2% inflation, think of it as an economy that's not overheating, but also not limping along, and maximum employment or full employment, as many Americans gainfully employed contributing to our economy. Now, we think of those two goals as the ends of a seesaw. When the economy gets stronger and businesses have to compete to find workers, the unemployment rate goes down, wages go up, and eventually it leads to high inflation. So we're trying to balance this seesaw. Now, the truth is, for the last 10 years, we have had inflation that has been running below target up until this recent period. So we've had low inflation, and we've continued to have slack in the labor market, which means we were not really at full employment. So we were missing on both of our goals. So a year ago, our Fed chairman, Jay Powell, led us on a process to change the way we approach monetary policy to not preemptively raise interest rates just because we think inflation's around the corner, 
we've said, no, let's actually get to full employment or maximum employment. Let's actually get to our 2% inflation target, and then let's raise interest rates. And I think this is a really positive step that the Federal Reserve has taken to really get to a full employment economy. And what do you say to the critics? I mean, many of them are, are Republicans, but there are a lot of conservative uh, academics steeped in, you know, they've been steeped in the Federal Reserve and mo- monetary theory for years who feel that the Fed should only focus on the price stability portion of the dual mandate and kind of let the employment thing, if you do that, the employment thing will take care of itself. And they're very worried about this greater emphasis on employment. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, we had low inflation below our 2% target for the entire recovery, basically, after the financial crisis. And so if we were making an error in those 10 years, it's that monetary policy was too tight, not that it was too loose. So it's literally the opposite of the critique that they're making. And so, I mean, I I listen to their arguments, and it just doesn't stack up against the data. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the questions, I guess I'm sort of asking you a question that I kind of believe the answer in, but it's always struck me as strange that the notion that more people working, uh, paying taxes, earning a salary, that that depreciates the value of the dollar, which is what inflation is. Um, it always seems like a strange concept to me. Well, the thing that they're worried about is what the the country experienced in the 1970s, where if you have this series where the labor market gets really tight, firms have to bid up for workers, and the, the prices just keep going up and up and up, and people, it gets into the mindset of the American people that prices are going to keep accelerating, then they – Workers go to their bosses and say, hey, you need to keep raising my salary to keep up with my grocery store bills. And then it becomes a vicious cycle of escalating inflation. That's not good for anybody. So we all agree we have to avoid a repeat to the 1970s. But we are a long, long, long way away from that 1970s economy. Well, let's go to the phone lines. And first, I want to go to Bob in St. Paul. And Bob, you have a question on... uh well, really, the cost of living. Well, it's 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 the situation. I, I just saw a stat somewhere. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to the, to the effect that half of the workers in the U.S. can't afford uh, a one bedroom apartment. So, it just seems to me that we keep focusing on things like inflation and you know the unemployment percentage rate, but when you've got crappy jobs that don't pay well and don't have benefits. And we have a minimum wage structure that's kind of more more suited for 1920 than the than the you know the century that we're living in. Uh, those are those are the, the places I think that we need to be looking at and talking about more. Neil, I mean this you know the economy is not working for a lot of people. No, the the caller is 100 percent right about that. You know, everywhere I travel in our region, and the Minneapolis Fed covers Minnesota, the Dakotas, Montana part of Michigan, part of Wisconsin, affordable housing is a top concern for families. Whether it's red district or blue district, it does not matter. It cuts across partisan lines. And, you know, we've studied this. Why is it that home prices keep going up and up and up? Why aren't builders coming in and building more units that workers can afford? A big part of the problem are local imposed regulations that are well-intentioned, whether it's minimum lot sizes, you know, minimum uh, number of car spots, minimum number of bedrooms, 
All of those things are barriers to new supply coming in, and those are driving up uh, the cost of units and making it unaffordable. So it's a very complicated problem. Monetary policy cannot address affordable housing. That is really about regulatory policy and fiscal policy. But the caller is right. It's a very big issue. Now, the role that we can play at the Federal Reserve is let's have as strong a labor market as possible so that wages are going up for workers, so that good jobs are available. But that's only part of the equation. Another big part of the equation are just the costs of housing and why there's not more supply coming online. And is the cost of housing starting to drag on this economy, starting to weigh on it? You know, it's hard to know because uh, home construction and uh, building apartments is a big part of the supply of our economy. You know, construction workers and plumbers and all the electricians and all the stuff that goes in there, that's actually a big source of economic growth and economic activity. So on one hand, it represents a lot of economic activity. On the other hand, it is creating real burdens for many people who can't find affordable places to live. So I think it's a complicated story. Well, let's go to Will in the Twin Cities. Will? Oh, hi. Uh, good morning. Uh, my question is specifically, what are you doing to invest in ed- education to help minority, both men and women? Uh, there's, you know, the, the technology sector is growing faster than anyone can expect it. I'm a hiring manager. I wish I can hire more minority people, but they don't have the skill sets necessary. So what are you doing to invest, invest technology uh, education for minorities is my question. All right. Uh, so, is, I'm sorry. Go, Neil, ahead. go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say this is education is an enormously important issue. The skills of our workforce is a key driver of Minnesota's economic competitiveness and the nation's economic competitiveness going forward. Now, at the Minneapolis Fed, we don't set education policy. We're in charge of monetary policy with our other Federal Reserve banks, but we do care a lot about it because it really determines what our workforce looks like and how competitive our economy can be. So, for 20 years, the Minneapolis Fed has been a champion of investing in early childhood education to make sure that low-income kids of all races get an early start on high-quality education to set them up for success in K-12 through and then in higher ed. And we continue to be committed to that work. And then more recently, as we talked about a few minutes ago, former Supreme Court Justice and I are championing a civil right for every Minnesota kid to get a quality public education we think this can drive transformational change so that we're not leaving minority kids, but also low-income white kids who are being left behind in Minnesota today. Let's get them the education they deserve. It's in their interest, but it's actually in all of our interests that we do that. And now let's turn to Karen in Minneapolis. And Karen, uh, what is your question? Yeah, my question is, um, Mr. Kashkari mentioned that um, you know the unemployment rate only reflects on people who are actively looking for work, which I've heard before. But that leads me to wonder, so the only way the government would know that you're actively looking for work would be if you're collecting unemployment benefits, right? So is that basically saying that, that the unemployment rate is only people who are collecting benefits and anybody whose benefits run out are no longer considered hmm. unemployed for that, uh, for that measurement? Neil? That's a good question, and I can see why you would think that. That's actually not how they calculate it. So the government has economists and accountants who call people every month. They do surveys of thousands and thousands of Americans, and they ask them, are you working? Are you looking for a job? If not, why not? And so it's really people's answering those surveys. They, they get up. They, they get this 
uh, snapshot. It's not tied to the unemployment rolls, but I, it's a very good thought that you had on why it might be. But you know what's interesting? A lot of people who answer the survey and or answer the phone and they say, I'm not employed and I'm not looking for work, many of them next month take a job. Now, it's not supposed to work that way. If you're not looking, you're not supposed to be taking a job. But that's what tells me a lot of people may actually be in the job market even if they don't think they're in the job market because all of a sudden they see their neighbor or their brother or their sister gets a pretty good job and they say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go get that job. That looks pretty good to me. So what I've realized is there are a lot more people out there who probably want to work whether or not they answer the survey that they're actively looking for work. Do you think the same factors at work with people who retired in 2020? There was an unusual number of people retired in 2020. Um, but I wonder if it's a sort of a similar that as the job market comes back, they may unretire. I absolutely believe that. We saw that in 2017, 18, and 19. As the job market got stronger, there were lots of people that we thought would retire just based on their age and the trend line of retiring Americans. And they said, you know what? These wages look pretty good. These jobs look pretty good. I'm going to work for a few more years. And that was great for them individually to have that choice. And it was great for the economy because they were productive contributors to our economy. And our economy was more competitive because they chose to work. So I, I hope we're going to see that again. And Neil, I just want to go right back to the phone lines because the, the, the questions are mounting up here, which is great. I think we'll go then to Kate in St. Paul. Kate? Hi. Um, hi. I'm, um, hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, I'm calling about um, credit scores and the inherent racism, um, partly from the racial covenants and redlining um, that kept uh, people of color from owning um, homes, but also from things like the fact that renters, when renters pay their rent, that never counts towards their credit score. Whereas if you own a home and you're paying your mortgage, that does count towards your credit score. I mean, it seems like the credit scores are designed to ensure that people who do not have never get and to keep people, you know, it, it's it's racist and, and uh, oppressive to people who are currently low income. So my, my question is that those are private companies. And I'm just wondering what can be done to try to address that and ensure that all people have access to credit markets? Neil, this is a, this is right in the what the Fed does. Well, this is a, I appreciate the caller's question and the comment. Uh, I think the, the observation about renting and not showing up is a great example. And I really appreciate her mentioning that. Now, we don't regulate the credit agencies. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure off the top of my head who does regulate the credit agencies. One of the things that gives me some optimism is there are many financial tech companies that are starting which are trying to come at new ways of judging people's credit worthiness. I mean, it's a reasonable thing for any bank or any lender to say, hey, I want to evaluate, are you a good borrower that's a low risk for me to lend to? That's a reasonable thing for banks to try to do. But as she said, there is historical racism woven into the fabric of some of these structures. And I know that there are uh, new companies that are being formed that are coming up with different ways of trying to make these assessments. Some of them are better. But I've also heard horror stories where some of them have their own racist, racist tendencies woven into it. And so I think this is something that more transparency on how they make these determinations can help. 
uh, more calls to action the way that she's making and more government oversight to try to root out some of these racist practices. But I, I, I don't have an easy answer for this. Uh, I think it's an important issue that she raised and something that we all need to continue to work on. All right, let's go to Jordan and Anoka. And Jordan, you heard something on the news? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I uh, heard on my news feed that the Fed was possibly looking at tapering purchasing of uh, like mortgage-backed securities. And I was just wondering, um, you know, housing prices have gotten so high. What uh, what effect does that have on housing? Does it have an effect on housing prices? You know, what effect does it have? So oh, I'm glad you called in with this question. And before the specifics of on the housing, Neil. Take a step back, and for the non-Wall Streeter, what does this tapering mean? What does it mean that you know the Fed will be you know is slowing down on its asset purchases? Sure. So the traditional way we affect the economy is we move uh, an overnight interest rate. That's a rate that banks charge each other. We move it up and down. If the economy is overheating, we'll raise that rate. If the economy looks like it's slowing, we'll cut that interest rate. And why do we do that? because ultimately it passes through to borrowers. If we move this overnight interest rate up, generally you would think that longer-term interest rates will go up and then mortgage rates will go up. So it'll be more expensive for a family to buy a home, to get a mortgage, and then that'll be put uh, tap the brakes on the housing market, so to speak. And if we cut interest rates, that's a way to provide more stimulus and boost the housing market as one example. Now, we cut interest rates to zero when the pandemic hit. And then we started doing this bond buying, or we call it quantitative easing, where we started buying mortgage-backed securities and long-term treasury bonds to directly drive down long-term interest rates. So we've been doing this now since the pandemic started. We're buying about $120 billion a month to provide more stimulus to the economy. So the caller's question is right. If we slow down how much we're buying, then you would expect on the margin uh, interest rates would go up a little bit and mortgage rates would go up a little bit, which will make it on the margin a little more expensive to get a mortgage. And that should tap the brakes ever so slightly on the housing market. At least that's how it's supposed to work. There are a lot of moving pieces at the same time. But directionally, I think that that's what one would expect to happen. And in terms of the the tapering and the move toward the tapering, I mean, looking at the Fed minutes, looks like there's a consensus, maybe a little bit of debate about the exact timing. How much is the Delta variant feeding into, you know, these judgments about monetary policy? Well, uh, the Delta variant matters a lot in how it's going to affect the job market. So we had a very strong job report, as you talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, about a million jobs in the last month. If we continue to put up numbers like that, then I personally will feel quite confident that we're making a lot of progress in our achieving our goals. And then I would feel comfortable to say, yes, it's probably time to start tapering those asset purchases and moving eventually to a more normal monetary policy that we will have recovered the damage from the COVID crisis. But if the Delta variant continues to spread widely, and if it continues to make people cautious about returning to the job market, or if it slows down hiring, I'll give you an example, a specific example. We have 1,100 employees at the Minneapolis Fed. We were planning on bringing everybody back to the office in mid-September. We've now delayed that at least a month, maybe longer, because of the Delta variant. Why does that matter? That means that businesses around the Minneapolis Fed 
who maybe would provide lunch to some of our employees, they're not going to have customers for another month or so. And so Delta could be a damper on the economy that could slow things down. And that could cause me at least to reconsider, is it time to taper asset purchases or should we be a little bit more patient? Okay. So let's go to Al in Minneapolis. And Al, I think you want to ask Neil a question that you've not got an answer to? <laughs> yes, I do. it. So uh, it seems to me that every time we have economic discussions, they start out with a trickle-down theory, uh, which to me seems to be designed to keep rich people rich. Um, and then they say, well, yeah, but uh, we've since Reagan, we've proven that it uh, doesn't work and it's false. And then they move on to another subject, and they never tell us what actually does work, what actually is the economic policy or theory that that helps everybody uh, survive. I'm glad you asked that question. And, and Neil, we, we really only have 15 minutes left, but um, it's, an, it's, a good, it's a really important question. It's an important question. So I'll say it's a, it's a few different things. We talked earlier about education. I continue to think the most powerful tool that we have to build a better life for people is giving them the best education possible. So I think education is enormously important, and Minnesota has a big, big problem that poor kids in Minnesota are being left behind by our education system. Not just poor black and brown kids and indigenous kids, but poor white children in greater Minnesota are being badly served by the Minnesota education system, and that disadvantages them for the rest of their life. So first and foremost, I would say education is absolutely paramount. And then it's, uh, you know, it's things like access to broadband internet. That's another thing. Now, hopefully this infrastructure bill that Congress is on the path to passing will actually allocate money so we can wire America for broadband Internet so that not just people in the cities, but low-income people and people in greater Minnesota can get access to broadband. These are specific things that are not trickle-down. These are bottom-up, that if you give people good education, if you give them access to the technology they need, they can really take control of their own destinies, and have much better outcomes for themselves, their communities, and for all of us. And so those are a couple examples. It's more complicated than just those two. But those are two big things that we know how to do if we have the will to do it. So I'm curious. I mean, you've been on the front lines of two major economic crises, the 2008-2009 when the housing market uh, imploded, and then you had the Great Recession. Uh, You were there at the Treasury, and then at the Federal Reserve Bank with the pandemic recession. So, you know, over this 12, 13, 14-year period, what have you learned about the U.S. economy that you might, that you didn't know before you went through this period or that you didn't appreciate enough? I would say, um, you know, people are resilient. You know, people are, people want to work. There's a narrative that, oh, people are lazy and they don't want to work. It's nonsense. The vast majority of Americans want to work, want a chance to work hard, you know, get earn a decent wage, put food on the table, take care of themselves and their family. We saw that through 08. Every time we thought in the recovery after 08, every time we thought we're out of workers, that's it, we're at maximum employment, more workers came off the sidelines to take jobs. Or, the, or as we talked about earlier, they decided not to retire because they wanted to keep working. I think there is an inner American work ethic that people want to work and want to contribute and want to take care of themselves and their families. We got to just create an environment where they have the chance to do that. 
And so that's why I'm so focused on this maximum employment side of our dual mandate at the Federal Reserve. Let's give people a chance to work. I think we will continue to be positively surprised. And this, you've touched on something that has really been troubling me, where it seems to be in much of the economics profession, there is an assumption that people don't want to work, that if you have unemployment insurance, that's a disincentive to work. Like every so many government policies or so many policies are out there are considered disincentives to work. So it's almost like there's an underlying belief that people don't want to work. You're right. I mean, I think that's true. And I'll tell you something that really frustrates the heck out of me out of macroeconomic, the macroeconomics profession. Every time any kind of shock hits the economy, any kind of disruption happens, they immediately come up with stories for why some people now are not going to work who were working before. And I'm going to give you an example that's ridiculous, but it's an example. Some economists came out with a theory a few years ago and said, you know, young men are not working because video games are too good. Yes, I saw that. Right? Yes. Yeah. The PlayStation yeah. is so good. It's so addictive. They're never going to work again. It was absurd. And yet they come up with these stories where once you're on disability, you're never going to come off disability. Well, what we saw in the last expansion is as the job market got tighter, all of these theories fell away and people came back to work and worked and contributed to our economy. And so let's, let's start with the assumption that people want to work until proven otherwise, instead of starting with the opposite assumption. So uh, let's go to Bruce in Crystal. And Bruce, what is your question? Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, We hear that every year uh, about a half a trillion dollars in taxes goes uncollected for various reasons. Presumably it stays in private hands. How would that affect the economy if it all went into public hands or half of it? you know, actually got collected. Hmm. Neil? Well, it would put the U.S. government in a stronger fiscal position because that money would then be able to be used to fund, right now, what's being deficit spent uh, on the various programs in response to the the COVID crisis or the new infrastructure plan. It It would strengthen the U.S. government's overall fiscal balance and fiscal position. Now, I will tell you this, just as an observer, that every time there's a new president, the new administration comes in and says, oh, we're going to go close the tax gap. We're going to go collect this $500 billion because that's how we're going to fund our new priorities. And if it were that easy, I think one of the prior administrations would already have done it. So my guess is the money's out there, but my guess is it's not that easy to go find it and collect it. Otherwise, it would already have been done. So maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the next time that they really go after it, they'll actually be able to collect this money. But so far, nobody's been able to do it. So I'm skeptical. And I'm uh, taking a couple of questions that I got on Twitter for you and summarizing them. And basically, they're all asking, how concerned are you about the debt and the deficit? Well, it's a good question. So there's a big difference in, in what the government spends on. If the government is spending on investment, so roads, bridges, broadband, where you can expect a reasonable return over time, this is a great environment for the government to go borrow money at very low rates and make those long-term investments. That's very different than saying we're going to borrow money to fund what is essentially consumption by, and even if it's good consumption, even if it's childcare and education and healthcare, really worthwhile things, but how do you get paid back on that? And so, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense for the government to run the debt, to raise the debt that they need to go fund investment. 
But I think longer term, the government needs to put its fiscal house in order and figure out how do we pay for these ongoing benefits, which are more like consumption. You can't simply increase the deficit forever. Now, I will say the U.S. government has a lot more capacity for debt than I think any of us appreciated five or 10 years ago. But that doesn't mean it's unlimited. But no one knows exactly where the line is on how much further it can go before investors will say, you know what, we are going to demand higher interest rates because we're nervous about how much debt the government's taking on. That's an inexact science, and we're not sure. All right, let's go to Osman in Shakopee. And what is your question for Neil? Yeah, my question is uh, our community, they wanted to get a loan bank, and uh, the bank, they have interest. So our religion, it doesn't allow us to get interest in interest. They don't allow interest for anything. So can we get the bank for an Islamic bank? No interest. So we can buy houses and business. That's what our community needed. So how are we going to get that? Neil? Well, I know, um, I just know a little bit about Islamic finance. I know there are institutions that are focused on providing financial services to Muslim, the Muslim community, and there's an Islamic finance uh, industry. I will confess to you, I don't know a lot about it. I just know that it exists. And so I don't know off the top of my head what uh, products are available in Minnesota to serve the Muslim community here. Uh, if you reach out to me at the Minneapolis Fed, I'm sure one of my colleagues who focuses on regulating banks would have more information that we could provide to you. I just don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I'm certainly aware of what you're talking about. And let's go to Don in St. Paul. And Don, you have a question about the education amendment. Yeah, yeah, the page amendment. I just like, thank you for taking my call. I was kind of nervous there for a minute, but uh, Neil, thank you for listening for this moment. Uh, the page amendment, while I support it, uh, the essence of the page amendment, as a teacher, educator, and an adjunct, uh, there are some blind spots in that particular bill. Uh, one being that it will create another disparity between families that can and cannot litigate through the court process if they feel their child is not getting an education. Even on the website, it says this is, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not a cure-all. This is just something to do to try to get in the right direction. But we've done that 100 times over the last 25 years. So with that said, if you look at Minnesota Statute 119A and 120A, it looks to me like the Page Amendment is duplication. And, it, and while the page, the page Amendment right now has the opportunity to address the teaching, and when I say the teaching in the classroom from K to 12, we're still using the Danielson model when we should be using the modern classroom model, and uh, which is uh, right. Okay, learning. You know, you know what I'm saying. So uh, there, there, it's, it's a lot. There's, the methodology is is not is is, is flawed. Terribly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for calling uh, in with your comment, Don. And is, essentially, this is a, a challenge to the Page Amendment. Well, uh, let me just. Uh, I appreciate the question. You know, if you look at the history of civil rights in America. It's never rich families or rich parents or rich women or rich men who are bringing complaints. It is almost always in the history of civil rights in America, a low-income person who's being hurt by the system, whose rights are being violated, that brings the case that leads to transformational reform for everybody. Brown versus Board of Education was not a rich family. It was a low-income family, and it led to changes that benefited wide 
swaths of America. And so that's the power that we think this potentially has. The Page Amendment is not specific as to here's the type of instruction, here's the type of classroom. It's, it's meant to be much higher level of principle enshrined in the Constitution. And then it'll be up to the parents and the teachers to determine what do these children need in order to reach their full potential. We don't want to prescribe that. We want families and teachers to have that power. The Page Amendment will give them that power. All right, let's turn to David in Minneapolis. David, what is your question? Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. I wanted to bring up a question that brings us back to where you all were a moment ago with full employment. Um, And I'm just wondering if you can help us think through how we should think about the ethical implications of employment targets when we know that someone who's unemployed won't be able to pay rent or buy groceries. So if we think that it sounds like you think that the goal should be complete employment, um, but if we think that it should be anything less than complete employment, what are the ethical implications for folks who won't be employed um, and won't have an income? Neil? Well, we know it's not going to be zero unemployment. There are always going to be some people who, for personal reasons, are between jobs or transitioning. But I think the unemployment rate that we used to think of as full employment, it's a lot lower than we appreciate it. So I'm in the camp of let's have the job market be as strong as possible so as many people who want to work are able to find good jobs. Let's do that as long as the economy is not overheating. You know, at some level, theoretically, if you try to push the economy harder and say, we're going to demand more goods and services, but there are no more workers available, then you're just going to overheat the economy. So I'm of the camp of let's make the job market as strong as possible up to the economy's potential, and then we'll know. And so, you know, it's a very good question. I'm with you. I mean, I think if we just say a target, well, 5% is as good as it's going to get, when really we could get to 3%, those 2% that could have been working who are not, that's profoundly unfair for us to keep them on the sidelines. I just think we should err on the side of giving people a chance to work. And then let's see what the economy looks like. And this is a little bit of an unfair question to ask you when we've got only about a minute left. But I'm curious with the move to remote work and online purchases and looking at business investment in the various digital services, Do you think we've seen a step up in productivity in this economy? Well, we know we're seeing it because GDP has fully recovered from before the pandemic, and we're still six to eight million workers short. So just the math of that is we're producing the same amount of goods and services with a lot smaller workforce. So that means productivity has gone up. Now, the question is, can we sustain it? And I hope we can. I think we've all learned. I never use Zoom before the pandemic hit. (laughs) Right? Now we're all Zoom experts. (laughs) Exactly. So I think there are a lot of changes that are going to stay. I don't think we're all going to be remote forever. I think it's going to be uh, more flexible than in the past. And I do hope it leads to sustained higher productivity going forward. It'd be good for everybody, better wages for workers without inflation. It'd be really positive. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. And thank you to everybody who called in and um, apologize to some of the people that we didn't manage to get to. But um this has been a great hour thank you you've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on npr news 
You can hear Chris Farrell, Brent Williams, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.